Amen. This morning, the passage that uh, Daniel will be preaching from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. When you find your place, would you please stand and we'll read the scriptures together. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And as each one has received a special gift, employ it in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we want to be a people that are united. We want to be a people that get along here and serve one another, exercise giftings into the lives of others, protect us from isolation, from self-absorbance. We, God, we pray you'd use this body to... Um, to proclaim the gospel here in Hood River, the Dalles, and even farther beyond. We pray, God, that uh, you just use the preaching this morning uh, to move hearts to, to a higher standard, to pursue a holiness that is uh, supernatural, a holiness that causes to take every thought captive to the obedience of you, a holiness that uh, sets our desires on you and not self, and, but sets our desires to serve others, Father, and let us be so contagious when the world here in Hood River, the Dalles and Goldendale, when they see us, they see difference. And God, start it right here with your people. So we pray for uh, Daniel as he comes forward, as he takes your word and exposits it. And, um, and thank you for his diligence. His, uh, even as a young man, Father, you've gripped his heart with truth. We pray that uh, you would use that which you've given him to move our hearts to a higher walk with you. So we praise you for this time in your, your holy name, and you may be seated. Well, good morning, Faith Bible Church, Hood River. It is, uh, it's a joy to be with you. Um, I, uh, yeah, have known the Mullins for a long time. Chris has been a mentor, and he was, he was the interim college leader between, between two pastors, and so he was in charge of me for my freshman year of college at Gonzaga. Um, but I'm a Zag like he is. Go Zags, if you're basketball fans. Um, yeah, it is, it's weighty to, to handle God's word. I'm really excited to be here, um, but I'm, I'm hit with the weight of this, even in light of uh, verse 11, which we'll, get, which we'll get to. And I think Steve's version was um, as one who speaks utterances of God. Um, coming, coming to God's word and unpacking it and being convicted by it and being changed by it is it's a weighty thing. And so to unpack it for other people um, is... I hope I feel the weight of it, and if I don't, then, then I'm doing everyone a disservice, but um, we're in First Peter, 
1 um, Peter chapter 4, as Steve read. And I want to start with a little bit of context, because we're, we're starting kind of on the, at the, in the third section of the book. There's two sections beforehand. The purpose of the book of 1 Peter, written by the Apostle Peter, is to encourage and instruct Christians to live obediently in every area of practical life, despite the threats and persecutions of a hostile world. So the first two sections of 1 Peter, um, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10, is that in suffering, remember our great salvation. So Peter's reminding his audience who are a mixture of, um, this is slightly debated, but of Gentiles and Jewish Christians, um, that in suffering, your salvation is worth holding fast to. The second section, verses 2 through 11, 2, 11 through verse, for chapter 4, verse 6, is that in suffering, remember your example before men. Um, the promise of persecution that will come from the world, but that the example that we set before them is um, reflective of our, our belief and our love of the Lord. And our passage today begins this third section in First Peter, um, and we could title it, In Suffering, Remember Our Lord Will Return, which is the best news that we as believers could contemplate as we suffer in the world. So that's where we're starting, in suffering, remembering our Lord will return. So for, for the sake of our, our minds to kind of think about this idea of being prepared for the return of Christ, um, I, I have a question. If, if you all have, have prepared for a vacation or a journey or some event, um, it's essential to prepare the necessary items for that travel, correct? So if you're going to rural, cold Alaska, you're not going to pack your sunscreen and your swim trunks and your your, your towel and your umbrella, you're not going to pack those things, right? It's, it would be foolish to prep those items for the destination that you're going to. Conversely, if you're going to um, beautiful Southern California, Cabo San Lucas, we'll say, you're not going to pack your, your ski gear, your, your parka, your big hat, your gloves. It just it doesn't make sense to, to pack um, the opposite items for the destination in which you're arriving. So in the same way, just to get our minds prepped, um, what are the vital pieces of preparation that we need right now in anticipation for the promised return of Christ? What are the vital pieces that we need as we're prepping for the promised return of Christ? So in our passage, um, it's very application heavy today. There are, there are three key tenets of this preparation. And throughout the Gospels and throughout the, um, the rest of the, the New Testament, there are examples all over the place of um, Jesus or any of the writers of the epistles saying, stay awake, be prepared, stay awake, don't fall asleep. The coming of Christ is imminent. Don't be unprepared. So here are three ways, and they're not, this is not an exhaustive list by any means of ways to say prepared for Christ's return, but for our passage, three ways this morning. And our main idea is that Christ will return. Christ will return. Steward his grace in sober-minded, sacrificial service. I'll say that again. Christ will return steward his grace in sober-minded, sacrificial service. I believe it's on your notes as well, so if you need to reference that. But our first point today is to stay, stay sober-minded. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So as Peter begins this expose of reminding his audience of the imminent return of Christ, this first phrase pops up, the end of all things is at hand. And as I listened to a commentary from, from John MacArthur, he mentioned that this idea of end is not necessarily the, the final action of something where it's over and then there's nothing afterwards, um, but rather the idea of end is the, the consummation, the, the completion of, of something for its final purpose to begin. 
This idea of the end of all things is, is frequent in the, Old, in the New Testament. Um, and in, for most, most scholars believe this idea of the end of all things is that as Christ has ascended into heaven, the imminent promise of his return um, will be that consummation, will be the end of all things. And it's interesting, as Peter is writing to his audience 2,000 years ago, he's reminding them, the end of all things is at hand. Christ, Christ's imminent return is, is right in front of you, so be prepared. But, but that, didn't, that didn't happen in their time, right? So was, was Peter wrong to remind them of this? We're, here we are 2,000 years later. Christ has not returned yet. So is it, is it foolish or a waste of time to be reminded of these things? And I think the answer is no. The Lord purposefully, in, in the New Testament especially, for the new covenant believers under Christ's blood, did, did not show or tell the time that he would return so that probably one of two things wouldn't happen. We wouldn't be apathetic and say, well, we know it's going to happen in 50 years, so we'll just kind of be relaxed and then get really, really ready right when it comes. And Or, on the other end of the spectrum, be overly anxious and overly aware and overly fearful of, well, am I going to be ready? Am I going to do things correctly? Is, is, is this going to happen the, the way I think or the way that I want? Am I going to be ready? Um, so to avoid these two polar opposites, I think the Lord in his kindness did not reveal this exact time that he would return. And rather, he gives us tenets of, of preparation, of you don't know the time, um, but the promise is still here. The imminent return of Christ is coming. So our first point, stay sober-minded and self-controlled. And I love, I love how Peter starts. He starts with our minds. He starts with where we are meditating, where we are thinking, and so often... Um, our unbelief and, and what we're not fighting in our minds translates to our actions and our symptoms of, of heart issues, of discontentment, of unbelief, of, of wrong thinking. It starts with our wrong thinking. So he calls his audience to be sober-minded. Now, this is a theme throughout all of the book of 1 Peter. If you turn probably just one page to your left to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, there's another therefore. 1 Peter 1, 13, it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, there's that word, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So yet another reminder of in being sober-minded, what is the way that we stay sober-minded? Setting our hope fully on the grace that will be shown us at the revelation of Jesus Christ in anticipation of this imminent return of Christ. So in light of this idea of being sober-minded, there's a, a scriptural example. But what would, what would the opposite of sober-minded be? And I think the scriptures clearly lay out the, a juxtaposition between sober-mindedness and drunkenness. Um, but maybe in a more practical sense, through in, in our world, uh, one, of the, one of the things that came to mind was the, the phrase that younger people use these days, um, you only live once. Um, the ensuing result of you only live once is often just go and impulsively do something foolish. Well, I just live once. Might as well just go jump off this cliff without a parachute or something like that. I don't know, into a 50-foot drop of water. It's impulsive. It's a lack of self-control. It's living for immediate pleasure and gratification. Um, that is the opposite of being, of being sober-minded. Now, we'll, we'll define then the opposite, the, the good side, the put on what is sober-mindedness. Um, sober-mindedness sober is living with single-minded focus, not living with this in mind and this in mind and this in mind, trying to achieve all of them at once, but living with a single-minded focus. Now, biblically, this focus in, in our context, in our passage, is Christ's imminent return. Now, this can also include, of course, Christ's work, his work on the cross, um, God's character in general, but for our, our intents and purposes, being sober-minded is, is the anticipation um, of Christ's return. Now, Paul attaches these words, being self-controlled and sober-minded, to 
prayer, for the sake of your prayers, as we look back in verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, prayer, prayer in its right form, if it is, in fact, coming from a place of sober-minded self-control, is humble, is dependent, is needy. Steve outlined for us, especially in corporate prayer, it is a, a gathering together and an honest confession of who is the Lord. We adore him. We see our, our smallness in light of who he is. We confess our need that he is the authority and that we have fallen short of, of his standards. We thank him for the reality that he has met us, even though we have fallen so short of those standards. And then we plead with him for his grace and his mercy and what he supplies us through his son on the cross and now even as Christ intercedes for us in heaven. That is the right form of prayer for living with a sober-minded, single-focused view. That is how our prayers will look. The reality, though, is that we can take this idea of, of prayer, and if we're not acting in a way that's sober-minded, if, if we're impulsive, if it's lack of self-control, if we're influenced so much by the world, our, our prayers are not sober, and that, that can show itself in a few different ways. What could a sinful prayer tendency look like? Either over-interpretation over of um, political events in the, in the United States or, or the world at large as markers of Christ's return, maybe. Praying, praying self-condemnation on those um, around us who are perpetrating sin, uh, but doing that from a selfish motive. Um, maybe it's a lack of prayer. Maybe our, our lack of sober-mindedness and self-control shows, shows up in a life void of scriptural um, dependent prayer on the Lord. All these are uncontrolled and worldly approaches to, to prayer and demonstrate a lack of sober-mindedness and self-control. But again, prayer at its root is a protective and a communicative personal interaction with the Lord. So walking with sober-minded prayers to be dependent on the Lord and daily anticipate looking forward to his return. If we are walking in sober-mindedness, the, the foundation and the promise of what Christ has done and that he will return will inform all of our responses to the world, to the persecution that we receive, to, to whatever scenario there is. And as I was, as I was studying through this idea of being sober-minded, a, a song lyric came to mind from a song called Turn Your Eyes. I'm sure you all have heard it. And it's, it's just the first line of the song. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Is that, is that not the reality? Like when we look at things at the backdrop of what Christ has done and his imminent return, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So for application's sake, which, which are you? The, the worry prayer, the discontent, angry, independent, lack of pray, prayerer, prayerer, <laughs> Um, <laughs> that word doesn't really, doesn't really come out very well. Um, the not at all or, or rarely ever prayer. Um, plead with the Lord, cry out to him in whichever case um, to be sober-minded. Ask him, Lord, I am, I am not self-controlled in how I pray and how I approach the, the, the world. Um, and for specific application, I, wanna, I would love us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you can turn there with me. And I challenge you, maybe this can be a verse uh, of memorization, if you haven't already, um, that, will, that will frame well your response to the world um, in light of the promise of salvation and in light of eternal things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. It says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, 
Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, are passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, I love how Paul frames this. In verse 17 specifically, he says, this light momentary affliction, he's not discounting the fact that our suffering and our trials are legitimate and real, but he's putting again, he's putting this in light of the backdrop of the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for Christians in eternity. And he's saying that it is, it is weightless in comparison to the eternal that, that is in light, uh, that, that will be our reward. So, for application, being sober-minded, take this verse, memorize it, meditate upon it. Where in your life are you focused on the seen and not on the unseen? Where are we focused on our, our scenarios and not on, on the imminent return of Christ or what he has done? So, in light of our, our thoughts and being, sober, being sober-minded and being self-controlled, we, we get to our second point here, being sacrificial. So now this, this beginning um, of Paul's, or excuse me, Peter speaking to, to our actions. So our second point is stay sacrificial or, or love, love one another earnestly, this idea of, of being sacrificial towards one another. So love earnestly though, verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love earnestly. What, is, what does this word earnestly mean? If, if, we, if we kind of picked it apart or figured out what it means in its context, some of, the, some of the, the synonyms that I found of it were love fervently, love deeply. Love itself, um, if, we, if we were to define it or give it a definition, is the willing and sacrificial giving of yourself in some way, small or large, for the good of someone else, regardless of the cost to you. It's kind of a long definition, so I'll read it again. Love itself is the willing and sacrificial giving of yourself in some way, small or large, for the good of someone else, regardless of the cost to you. The Greek word, earnestly, is ektene. If you know Greek, um, you can criticize my um, pronunciation of that. But um, it, it was used often to describe the straining of athletes um, as, they were, as they were running towards the goal, as they were straining towards the finish line. So if you've seen, even in the, in the Olympics or in any of, your, of the, the sporting events that you love, um, most people have kind of the tighter clothing on, and so you get to see all of the muscles ripple and, and as they're straining forward towards the end and towards the goal um, as they desire to be the first. Um, and th- I think this is a great picture of what loving earnestly should mean. Are we, are we striving forward um, with, all, with all intentional, um, purposeful, um, I don't know, fervent and deep love for one another? Is this, is this a straining, um, purposeful run as we're, as we're loving one another? Um, and we get to the next phrase here, um, love earnestly, love deeply, love is, um, purposefully for love covers a multitude of sins. Now there's so much that we could unpack here. Um, but I'll, I'll start with the greatest example of, of love covering a multitude of sins, right? So we'll, we'll bring this to, to our, our level in a moment here, but it would be, it would be foolish to not begin looking at this phrase, um, in light of, what Christ has done on the cross. But, but in order to understand that, we have to go back to the beginning. God in his triuneness, God the Father, God the Son, and Spirit, lived in perfect, ex- existed in perfect communion with each other in eternity past, decided in, in their perfect wisdom to, to create by the word of their power. They created man in their image to reflect them, to love them, to take dominion over the earth. Um, 
man disobeyed God's command and separated himself from communion with God and his sin um, was egregious against the holy and perfect character of God. God promised that if, if they sinned, they would be separated, they would, they would die, and yet in that promise, he, he still made a way, um, a covenant, a promise to cover their sin. Um, a seed would come from, from Eve, the first woman, to, to save humanity. God chooses Abraham out of a foreign land. Um, his son Isaac and Jacob, and eventually Israel, God chooses a people for himself who sin, who God punishes. He restores after they repent. They sin. He punishes them. They're restored after they repent. The cycle continues. He provides covering for them through the sacrificial system. He provides judges for them to bring them back to repentance. He provides kings, kings who would represent them before him. Um, he provides prophets to call them to repentance. And all the while, there is, there is a promise that there would be an eternal covering someday, someday in anticipation of a covering that would come that would be effective for salvation, effective for heart change. And Christ comes on the scene. Born of Mary, Christ lives in perfect submission to God the Father. He not only keeps the law perfectly, but he loves God the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the archetype for all of mankind. He did what men before him, men and women before him, and all men and women after him could not do by perfectly submitting to God the Father. And he doesn't come just to be an example, but he comes to be a sacrificial lamb, a lamb whose blood would cover the multitude of sins. Christ dies on the cross. In that death, his blood, the costly blood, is shed for those he has chosen. Christ dies. He does not stay dead. He rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, and now intercedes and advocates for those who are his children. This, is this not the greatest example of love covering a multitude of sins? Faith Bible Church, Hood River. Is this not the greatest example? So in light of this, how should we be loving one another? Is Christ covering the multitude of my sin, as you say that to yourself, but my sin and your sin, um, does, that, does that remind us or does that put us on the same playing field with each other and even in relation to non-believers, the only difference between us and non-believers is what Christ has done. There's nothing, nothing else different. Um, and that is an eternal difference, but it's nothing that we have innately done ourselves. So, so Christians, what does it look like in our own context for love to cover a multitude of sins? If we're looking at ourselves on the same playing field, what does this look like? Wayne Grudem comments on this phrase, love covering a multitude of sins, in the context of a local church. He says, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, and even some large ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. Now that is a weighty comparison there, right? Where, where love abounds and sin is covered in our, our grace towards one another, um, unity in Christ is fostered and grows. But where suspicion and thinking the worst and not being sober-minded and self-controlled, to, to speak on our first point, when, when that occurs, division, conflict, disunity um, flourish and, and rip, rip a church body apart. So these are the principles, loving earnestly for communion with one another 
as we forgive and look over each other's shortcomings. Um, but how do we struggle with this? How, how are ways in which we don't walk um, as loving one another and let loving, letting love cover a multitude of sins and loving each other earnestly? Everyone, everyone has quirks. Everyone has um, preferences. Some people act or talk in or function in ways that, that bug us or bother us. And in most cases, these aren't sin. This is just our preference. Um, and in most cases, the question that, that I am reminded of often when I'm challenged with these things is how, Daniel, how highly do you think of yourself? So I'm going to ask that to everyone here. How highly do you think of yourselves in relation to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Does your pride and self-glory override God's call in your life to love other Christians well? And I have a little example of this. There's a, there's a guy in my church. He's a few, few years older than me, a little bit socially awkward. Um, and on multiple occasions, this has happened in the past, where I'll be having a conversation with someone in our, our college ministry, and, and he'll just walk up and totally interrupt the conversation. Just be like, hi, Daniel, how's it going? What's going on in your week? Hope things are going well. And like totally usurp the conversation. And my response is one of two things often. And it sometimes is good, sometimes is bad, right? It depends on, depends on my heart response and my understanding of who I am in light of my brother in Christ and in light of who God is. It's either a frustrated, hey, we'll say his name is Brian. Brian, I'm talking with this guy. Can you please not interrupt? So short, unkind, pithy, or letting love cover a multitude of sins and saying, Brian, how are you, man? It's good to see you. Tell me, tell me about your week. How are you doing? And then getting back to the conversation with, with my other brother. So how, how can that example um, maybe give light to or, or show um, some, sort of, some sort of heart motive in, in your experience, in your walks with other believers here at Faith Bible Church. Um, some questions. How quick are you to annoyance? How quick are you to assume X, Y, or Z um, about, about someone who's interrupting or who has some quirk or has some, something that bothers you? Because the reality is that in, in all of those scenarios, you're the common denominator, and your heart and your response to that, to that scenario, um, that's, that's the common denominator, and you have all control as a believer, if you, are, if you are a believer in Christ, to respond in a way that honors the Lord. And a verse that someone challenged me with in light of this conversation, or in this type of interaction with my friend Brian, um, Proverbs 12, 16, it says, a fool shows his annoyance at once, but someone who is wise um, lets an insult pass al along those lines. I show my annoyance at once often. And in a, in a congregation of believers where sin is there and is, is not absent, how is it that we can put on this practice of, of not showing our annoyance at once and loving each other earnestly and letting love cover a multitude of sins? So now we transition to verse 9. This is the love earnestly, that's the practical look at it, but now, or that's the kind of the, the abstract look at it and some, some practical application, but now verse 9 gives us um, some, some real teeth to, or some real, some, some real stuff to bite into here, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's what verse 9 says. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I realize that you all have been going through the book of Matthew. Chris has been preaching through Matthew. And Matthew 20 and 21, as, as I've looked at it briefly and heard a few of the sermons from the past few months, um, Jesus is condemning the faithless Israel and their, their lack of fruit. They're all leaf and no fruit. They're, they're all hear, they're hearers of the word, but not, not doers of the word. And I wanted to just support what, what your head pastor has faithfully been preaching um, and, and a lot of what's coming next is, is called to do, calls to be doers of the word and not only hearers of the word. So as we look at this idea of hospitality and then verse, in verses 10 and 11, using our gifts, using our gifts to serve one another, um, let's be reminded of, of not, not to just be hearers of the word, but also 
doers of the word. So back to verse 9, hospitality. The word in the Greek is philoxenoi, something like that. And it breaks down um, literally to the love, love of the foreign. Um, and I think this actually gives a very wide definition of what hospi- hospitality is or, or could be, right? In most cases, we pigeonhole hospitality to, I'm going to invite someone over to my house, I'm going to cook them a meal, I'm going to interact with them and engage with them for two hours, and then they'll leave, and I'll clean up my home, and, and that's it, and, and then we're done. And I think that in most cases, that is, a, that is an incredible way to, to show hospitality to one another, um, but I don't think it's the only one. I think that, um, I believe that there, um, there's, there's more ways that it can be shown, and at its root... Hospitality is not only loving, as we've looked at in verse 8, but it's, it's generous, it's selfless, and it's giving of your, your practical, um, the things that you have practically, the things that God has given to you um, for the edification and blessing of another person. Um, and so I think that, that that doesn't necessarily just mean you have to have people over for a meal. I think that they can look in a few ways. So here, here are a few thoughts for how this can look. Invite people into your fun family activities. Um, whatever that may look like. Meet at the park, plan some fun outdoor game. Take time for intentional conversation and speaking of encouragement with Christ in those contexts. If you're, I don't know, if you're huge fans of cornhole and you host people in your backyard or you go to the park and you play on the play structure and you play cornhole, whatever it may be, like have intentional conversation with one another. Um, take someone out for a cheap coffee. I realize that that, that does cost a little bit of money, but um, invest in them. Open the word with them. Initiate spiritual conversation Teach someone a skill you have that is, that is useful. Um, ask someone if you can learn a skill that, that they have. Like I spent, I spent the weekend with Steve and his entire life was contracting. I did contracting for three, four summers that I was growing up, worked for a general contractor. It is an incredibly valuable skill. So just for example's sake, what, what skills do the people in the body of Christ have that you can learn from? And, the, and in those, as you are learning from them, just practically from those skills, where, where can the spiritual encouragement and edification come? Where can the love of the foreign, loving someone outside of you, where can that manifest? Hospitality at its core is just being intentionally knee-deep in each other's lives, sharing life together, spurring each other on to love and good works, knowing each other well, supporting one another in suffering, crying with one another, laughing with one another, It all starts by making reasons and excuses to, to be in each other's lives. Now, the reality is that there's a phrase right after, show hospitality to one another, that I would be remiss to skip over. Uh, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What is, what is the tendency of our hearts as we are pouring ourselves out for others? In our fallenness, in our imperfection, the tendency of our heart can be, well, I want them to appreciate and praise and say, well, thank you for doing these things, and thank you for serving me in this way, and um, oftentimes we twist what God has commanded for, for our own ends and for our own, our own glory. Do you, do you like to be the person who is known to be hospitable? Is it a, is it a self-glory-driven um, event? Um, the purpose of our hospitality um, at its core should be the service of one another, um, and there, there's an example in my own family where Hospitality became a, a grumbling matter. We were, ser- we were hosting a growth group at our, at our home. My parents were leading it. My dad was leading it. And the hour before in our preparation of getting the home ready was always tense and frustrated and kids go clean this up and prepare, prepare this meal and prepare this snack and get these things ready. And, and then as soon as people showed up, 
we, we put on our happy faces, and there was tranquility in the home, and everything was perfect, and the Doherty family looked great. But often looks can be deceiving, right? And at one point, I don't remember if it was my older brother or younger sister, who definitely wasn't me, who asked my parents, why is there this, this hostility in our home before we're trying to serve people and love people and be hospitable to people? And I, I think it was awesome. My parents' response wasn't defensive and frustrated, like, well, we have to, we have to keep the house nice, and of, of course this is what we have to do. It was humble. It was, it was thankful. And after those conversations, the, the, the posture towards our preparation for hospitality changed. Um, it was, we're here to serve people. The house doesn't need to look perfect, um, although that's an okay goal. There, there are... There was so many, there was just, there was a change when, when the heart behind the hospitality, the heart behind the earnest love for, for those coming into our home, um, when that heart changed. I mean, ultimately, one of the other roots of hospitality is just, is the service of one another, is, is earnestly loving one another in, in service. And this leads us to our, our third point, be, be serving. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11. I'll read those for us. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. We begin in these verses with some profound news for Christians. As each has received a gift... Every Christian has been gifted by God to bless God's chosen people, Christ's bride, the church. Every single believer, those of us who are believers in this room, you have a gift that can be used to bless Christ's body. First of all, this should astound us. God not only saves us from the eternally weighty sin debt that we owe him, but he has decided to incorporate us in his plan of salvation the going forth and building of his kingdom, huge theme in the book of Matthew, I'm sure that has been communicated. He has tasked us with gifts to be stewarded well. Now, the reality with this task, with this promise that believers have been given gifts to edify the body, is that they can be used in vain or they can be used ineffectively. So if, if you can, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just a little bit to your left. We're going to be looking at verse 10. First Corinthians, verse 15, chapter 10. This is Paul speaking. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul is clarifying and highlighting here that the grace that God has extended to him was not used in vain. And we are the recipients of that with all of the epistles that God has graciously given us through Paul. But I want to highlight here the reality that Paul is Paul's, the grace that has been extended to Paul was not used in vain. Now, the reality, in light of that statement, is that it is possible 
for the grace that's been extended to us and in the gifts that we've been given to be used ineffectively and to be used in vain. This is a warning against selfishly using gifts for your own prideful, selfish, greedy end. For those motives render you nearsighted and, and ineffective in ministry. That is the practical put off in light of verse 10. I wanted to briefly highlight that. The warning that our gifts can be used in vain if we're apathetic, if we're self-serving, if we're fearful. But here's the put on. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, for, for illustration's sake, to a Jewish person, and I'm, I'm looking at um, the ESV, the word oracles is used. I think Steve's was utterances. That was the, the scripture reading before. But this idea of, of an oracle to even a Jewish, Jewish Christian or, or to a Gentile would have had some significant meaning. And now, and for a little bit more context, the, the audience of First Peter is in the region of, verse one verse one says, Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Galatia. Nowadays, that's, that's Greece and Asia Minor. So it's this, it's this wide swath of land in, in the center of the, the known world at that point. These are individuals, or these individuals um, who, would be, who would have been recipients of, of this letter would have been steeped in the history of their surrounding area, specifically Greece. Um, and what famous oracle inhabited Greece? Um, there's one famously known as, and I'm sure many of you in, in your younger years studied, um, one called the Oracle of Delphi. People would come from all over Greece to receive counsel, wisdom, insight um, from the Oracle of Delphi. This individual was consulted for private matters, but also matters of, matters of state. There were wars fought on counsel of the Oracle of Delphi. There were colonies that were inhabited by the Greek Empire in light of the counsel of the Oracle of Delphi. People came from far and wide, far and wide requested things, great and small, paid immense amounts of money to receive counsel, cut people in line to get the, the wisdom from, from this oracle. Now, my point being, um, the value placed on the words of this oracle and the ensuing effects of her, of her counsel, um, because I believe it was a woman, um, they were held in high, high esteem. Now, I was, I was unable to find if this word oracle in the context of First Peter was a, a dig at the pagan practices of oracle listening or, or seeking the counsel of an oracle, um, but they would have understood the, the idea of an oracle, and maybe just for our own sake, we'll, we'll look at this illustration as the, the, the posture that individuals would have taken to receive counsel from this individual. It was excited. It was paying giant amounts of your own practical, of the things that you had practically, your, your finances, to, to hear the words of this individual. Um, you, were, you were sacrificing to, to journey, to hear what this person had to say. Um, and in a, in a pagan way, um, I think there's a level of exemplary action that's, that's going on there, despite the fact that obviously the source of that knowledge was, was useless and was godless and was sinful. So for the sake of example, the, the reality of this word here, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, that should, that should transfix our hearts with, um, with praise and honor in light of the, the weight of the words that, that we have in front of us here specifically and as we're in our discipleship relationships. Believer in your discipleship relationships, in your marriages, with your children, with friends and coworkers, if the Lord comes up in conversations, do you feel the weight of, of what you're handling, of what you're communicating? The, the very words of the Lord of hosts, the Holy One, the Alpha and the Omega, the sustainer of, of every li living thing. I'm a, I'm a science 
major, or that's what I studied at Gonzaga. So the one holding all 35 trillion of your cells together um, by the word of his mouth, are we, are we struck by the weight, the responsibility, the care, the intention? We in our finitude, in our finiteness, must take as we speak the oracles of God to one another. Are you convinced, Christian, that this is indeed the reality, that Genesis to Revelation, the 66 books of Scripture, are authoritative for everything in your life and everyone else's life, sufficient for everything in your life and everyone else's life, and clearly laid out for you to understand? Does that reality, does that belief, then translate to correct, careful, courageous proclamation of the word, whether this is discipling a young man through lust, a young woman through an anxious, unbelieving heart, whether it's encouraging your, your tired and hardworking husband or gently comforting your wife, whether it's loving, lovingly discipling or disciplining and pointing your children to the gospel or laying, God's, or laying God, sin, and Christ before an unbeliever, are you gripped by the responsibility you have in bringing to bear the very words and commands of God Almighty to the lives of those around you? Are we gripped by this? Peter continues, whoever serves as one who serves with the strength God supplies. In our service now, not, even, not only in our speaking, but in our service, and this is a big theme that um, the minister Paul Washer gives, as we, are, as we are walking faithfully, we must not give any opportunity or confidence in our own abilities, in our own flesh. He uses the phrase, give no ability, no confidence in your flesh to accomplish anything. In our serving, is there dependence and rely, excuse me, reliance on the strength of God to fulfill his own ends in us? Is there dependence and reliance on the Lord? Whether the service is opening the church on Sundays, maintaining the cleanliness of, of the church or of your home, whether you're singing in worship, putting the bulletin together, providing for your family and a less than ideal job, stewarding a home, discipling others, a whole host of other ways that we can serve our, can we analyze our hearts right now? Let's analyze our hearts. What is the motive of your, your speaking, to look at this first verse, speaking oracles of God, and what is the motive of our serving? Is it yourself? Is it the praise and honor of other people? Or is it the, the glory of the Lord? Whose attention are you seeking in your service? Others or the Lord's? What is your heart attitude when you don't get the recognition you want, when you don't get the, the praise you desire? Is that a right desire in the first place? And then what's your response when you don't get it? What is your heart attitude in, in all of these things? Are you serving for your own ends, your own strength? Or are you stewarding the gifts that God has given in his power? And even to the verse that we looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, it was not I, but, but Christ in me. I don't know if you all have heard of the band City of Light, but they have a song called Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. It is probably one of the most beautiful songs ever. Totally a subjective opinion. But, um, but, but that's, that's the, the, the anthem that the believers must have in their speaking, in their service, in their sober-minded and self-controlled approach to life, in their hospitality. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And the reality also is that the, the correct answer to these questions of what am I seeking in my service? Am I seeking the right things? Um, the right answer to those questions is seen in the second portion of verse 11. Look at it with me here. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When God's glory, seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross, is the end, like the first verse, like verse 7, the end of all things, is the, the reason or the why behind our service, all that will matter in our hearts if we are stewarding God's gifts well, like verse 10 says, as, good, as stewards of God's varied grace, um, if he receives the glory, results, recognition, rapport, among other believers, it loses all its allure in light of the grandeur of God, right? So we're back to this theme of in light of the backdrop of Christ's glory and his grace, his work on the cross, do, do the things of the earth, our recognition, do they, do they grow strangely dim in the light of what he has done and what he has shown in his character for us to know and to believe? So let's, let's wrap all of this up together. Our word picture from the beginning how do we think about these things in light of Christ's imminent return? As you're prepping for that vacation this summer that you're planning on going on with, with friends or with family to, to whichever location, um, what, are, what are the tools or the things, the items you're bringing that, that reflect your, your destination? Um, are we practicing in light, of our, in light of that word picture and in light of our, our passage here is the, is the practice of self-controlled, sober-minded prayer, loving one another earnestly, practicing hospitality, speaking the oracles of God, serving one another with the strength that Christ gives. Are these, are these the practices of us as believers? Um, there are countless examples, again, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, in the Gospels and in the epistles of the promise of Christ's return, this idea of staying, staying awake. And I want to turn to one last passage this morning. We're going to turn just a little bit to our left again, 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5, turn with me, with me there. The key to this passage as we look at it is we don't want to be found not ready as Christ, has, as Christ returns. We don't want to be found um, sleeping or, or there, are some, there are some examples in the epistles of we don't want to be found drunk and um, without our minds intact. We don't want to be found that way. We want to be found faithful. And, and honoring and walking in ways that, that are, are worthy of our Savior. So look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 for us. This is the writer Paul speaking. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you were not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you were all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we, are, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. 
So here's the call to Faith Bible Church in Hood River, to myself. Are we awake or are we asleep? To the believer, you are walking, you are children of light, as verse 5 says here. You have been shown your sin. You have submitted in, in the power of the Lord and his electing purpose to the Lord, to God, um, in your obedience and in faith and repentance. So are you putting on practices of staying awake? These are the, the passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 gives clear tenets for, for what that can practically look like. Now for the unbeliever in here, are you in darkness? Are you asleep? Are you walking around as a drunkard? Do you realize that as verse 2 says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How many of us are prepared? I don't know. I don't want to bring up any trauma in anyone's life, but if your house has been broken into, how are you ready? For, are you ready for it? You're probably asleep. Someone breaks in, steals your TV. Hopefully that's all and just runs out. We're not prepared for that in most cases. And I think that's a helpful word picture for the possibility of our response or how we can be living um, as unprepared for Christ's return. So non-believer... This is a call to you. Don't, don't be asleep. Don't stay asleep. Hear the call of Christ. Hear the reality that he has covered your sin with his blood. And that if you respond by faith and repentance, he will be your savior and he will, he will be your Lord. Hear that call. Don't, don't be asleep. I, I plead with you today. And believers, believers, once again, stay awake. Be, be mindful of the times anticipate, be, be thankful, be excited about the return of Christ, because that means what? It means we'll be absent from flesh. It means we'll be outside of the, the weight of our carnal flesh and outside of the weight of our sin. What a thing to look forward to. What a thing to hope in. If this, what we looked at in First Peter today, if this, while done imperfectly in our, in our flesh and in our sin, um, but with the faithfulness of the Lord to, to help and support us, if this is the model that we faithfully follow, and if this is the model that we spur each other onto in our relationships as we're knee-deep with each other in, in the context of our local church, in the context of your local church here in Hood River, then, then when Christ does return, you'll, you'll look up and you'll say, yeah, yeah, it's time. I'm ready. Has, has he found me faithful? Lord, have you found me faithful? I pray that that is true of, of you all and of myself. Um, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the stifling truths that, that show us our need, but also that you have promised to empower us um, to do. This is an application-heavy passage. Lord, I pray that, that something in here, there's so much, that, that something would have latched onto our hearts, um, that in conviction there would be obedience, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would live faithfully as you have called us. Lord, would we rely on you and your spirit to, to help us in our weakness? Um, Lord, we are so weak and so needy, um, but you are so faithful. Um, we thank you for your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.